morning. Looks like it must be summer. There's a few regular spots that are empty. And we are also in a summer series. Uh, We're not done with our Matthew series by any stretch, uh, but we're going to pause it for the summer. We're going to do a different series. Last summer we worked through a decade of psalms. We worked through 10 psalms, uh, and we may do some psalms later on this summer. Uh, But for the time being, what we're going to do is what I think is going to be a five-part series on uh, what I have titled A House for My Name, which is essentially looking at the most foundational elements of uh, God's work in creation, the most foundational institutions and concepts and ideas that God has put into creation to help orient us uh, in the the most basic things that we don't lose track. I've heard recently... Uh, and I think this is true, that one of the most dangerous things, especially for ministers and teachers, is the routine handling of holy things. And that gripped me. To routinely handle holy things is fearful. We may get bored, start innovating, come up with things because we're bored with God. And let's pray that that never, ever happens in this church, that we do not get bored of the routine handling of holy things. And so I want to focus this morning and this summer on basic things dealing with the glory of God and what it means that God is building a house for his name, a living temple with living stones, which is you and me. And so this morning we're going to start at the most basic, the most foundational block of all, and that is God himself. Who is God? What is he doing? What's our job here? And then we're going to look, uh, I've sketched this roughly, so don't hold me to it. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the glory of the church, followed by the glory of masculinity. What is the glory of man? The glory of femininity. What is the glory of woman? And then lastly, the glory of family. Five of the most foundational building blocks to understand the world. We're going to start this morning looking at Psalm 145 and at the glory of God. What are you here for? Why did God make us? And so turn in your Bible to Psalm 145, and once you're there, then I'll ask you to stand, as we always do, for the reading of God's Word. And these are the words of God. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and I bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all those who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, 
You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's start this morning with a thought experiment. Close your eyes if you need to, but for sure picture this. Let's go back before creation, before there was an earth, before one star was giving its light, before one fish swam through the ocean, before there was anything in this physical world, there was the triune God. God existing in Trinity, in three persons in one Godhead, in a loving and joy-filled community with all three persons perfectly glorifying and loving one another. There is no loneliness in this God whatsoever. There is no need. There is nothing he could crave or desire. Rather, there is this immense zeal for his own name, this burning passion in God for himself, God spilling over in zeal for himself is the cause of the creation of this cosmos. God did not create you and me because he was lonely and he needed a friend. And how often do we paint a picture of a weak, beggarly Jesus, like some kid sitting in the grade 7 cafeteria looking for a friend? God was so satisfied, so overjoyed, so in love with his triune self that it couldn't not spill over into a creation. He had to make his name big. He needed to create a theater and an audience for himself to enjoy because he was spilling over in love for himself. If zeal for his holy name. And so when God creates, he speaks things into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He speaks it and it comes to pass. When me and you create, we create with pre-existing matter. God did not rearrange matter to create like we create. God spoke it out of nothing, out of the nihil. And of course, God didn't audibly have to speak words to do this. God creates by divine fiat, by divine decree, In other words, God creates day and night, man and woman, moon and stars, by thinking them. And our small minds can only think of one or maybe several thoughts at once. And because we are bound in time, we have to think in a succession, in a series of thoughts. But God, being the divine mind outside of time, who knows all, who creates all, who is the source of all, does not think in a series of thoughts. To God, all is one big thought. And this is how God creates and sustains his creation. By thinking it, by decreeing it, by divine fiat, out of nothing. And as has already been said this morning, the moment God would stop thinking this universe into existence, it would implode. We would go back to the nihil. 
back to annihilation, back to nothing. And that means everything you've experienced, you as a person, and everything that's going on in the world right now, exists as God's thought. So who are you? Think about that. You exist as God's thought. Who do you think you are? How big are you? I want to make all of us this morning feel small enough that we can get a glimpse of the glory of God. And we see several reminders of the same concept, that God is the origin, the means, and the end of all things. In Colossians 1, 15-20, we read of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in all in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Christ, might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so to properly understand anything in light of this, for you to understand anything in any field whatsoever, whether it be agriculture, philosophy, or economics, you must start with the triune God of Scripture or you will not get started at all. It will not make sense if you don't start at the top. And this is what C.R. Wiley, a pastor, has said is the pastor's task. A pastor is not a specialist. He's a generalist. He should be the greatest generalist of them all. His field of study is reality. And you cannot get more general than that. His work is integration. Showing how it all fits together so that he can tell people how they contribute to the whole. What a task. But friends, that is the task I'm trying to take this morning. Let's get to the top. Let's see it from the top so we can see the world right. God is the source the upholder, and the goal of everything we do, see, or think. And that is why when you approach any topic, any field of study whatsoever, however far removed it may seem from the glory of God, I'm telling you it's not removed. The proper starting point is always to ask, what is God doing here? And how may I bring him glory as I approach this task? And this is just as true for diesel mechanics as it is for practicing law. But in this series, we're going to look at some of the most foundational elements of the world. And again, the reason I chose the name is in the Old Covenant, God symbolically placed his presence in a tabernacle and then in a temple. And in the New Covenant, he calls us living stones of a new temple. We are to extend his glory. God is no longer symbolically confined to one geographic location. He has made his glory visible everywhere, manifest everywhere. And that is what it means for you and for me to be a living temple, to extend the glory of God, the presence of Christ in all things. Calvin says in his Institutes that before you can understand yourself, you must know who God is. 
And the historic confessions and catechisms of the church reaffirm this. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question, the proper starting point is this question. What is the chief end of man? And the word end here doesn't mean finish. The word end means goal. What is the goal of man? Why are you here? Why is there man and not not man? And the answer is correct. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Heidelberg Catechism likewise starts, What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And so when we get into the psalmist's words here, verses 1 through 3, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David is the King of Israel, and he gets right down to business. The most powerful man in the kingdom of Israel grants happily that he has a king standing over him. He's acknowledged what God has done for him. And it may be too easy for us in these kinds of situations to think of God in mostly human terms, and then we just magnify it. And it is true that God is imminent, that is, he is close to us. But it is also true that God is transcendent, he is far above us. And in our culture, we tend to emphasize the closeness and the friendship of God. And these are absolutely true and necessary biblical concepts, as long as they are not divorced also from God's transcendence. The perfection of God is something of a different nature altogether that we cannot truly fathom for what it is. When we think about strength or power, you may think of the strongest person you know and then multiply that by a thousand to get some conception of God. Or when you think about the wisdom of God, you may think of the wisest or the smartest person you know and multiply it by 10,000 and get a picture of what God is like. But it's not just that God is the most wise or the most powerful or the most holy. God's wisdom and power and holiness are perfect and in fact they are the source of all our concepts of these things. God's character is to ours what the sun is to the moon. We can only reflect dimly. God creates like the sun, and we reflect like the moon. That's actually an interesting point to reflect, how God's creation actually symbolizes, it actually tells a story about heaven. If, If if the presence of God is the template, the original, then creation is designed to teach us things about God if we just will observe it. And there's lots of talk about the things that happen at full moon. I've talked to nurses that say, yeah, there is actually something to that. Weird stuff happens at full moon. And when we depict the underworld or the world of evil, it's consistently consumed by nighttime and darkness. Why is that? The sun is the source and the moon is the reflection. And in this arrangement, God has made the sun a symbol of himself, the originator, and the moon as a symbol of man, 
an image bearer, and a reflector. The sun is at the center and everything else relates in orbit around it. But what if the moon says, I'm tired of emitting this light. I'm pretty impressive. I'm emitting a lot of light. I'm reflecting a lot of light. Why don't I cut myself off from the sun so I get more glory? What would happen if the moon starts to deny the sun? If the moon were to cut itself off from the sun, not only would it lose its proper place in creation, but it would go from dim to the outer darkness. And if man cuts himself off from God, seeking to usurp God's glory and God's authority, he will not get brighter by cutting himself off from God and elevating himself. He is going to go from dim to outer darkness. In Latin, the word for moon is luna, right? We have a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse. And the ancients understood this well. Because if a man loses his mind, we call him a lunatic. He is ruled by the reflection rather than by the source. And friends, that is what it means to truly lose your mind. To deny the sun and to be ruled by the image. To make yourself the Lord of your life is the ultimate form of losing your mind. You lose all sense of perspective, all sense of meaning. And you will not grow brighter. You will go from dim to outer darkness. This is the language of scripture. You will be ruled by the reflection rather than by the source. The lunatic is the one who has cut himself off from God and he is ruled by the moon instead of by the sun. He is ruled by the reflection instead of by the source. And this is the man that Tim read about in Romans 1. The man who has denied the creator and started to be ruled by the creation. Who has cut himself off from the source of all goodness. And by making himself God, he has lost his mind and all sense of purpose and proportion. And later in Romans, in chapter 11, 33 through 36, we see this concept filled out further. How we must orbit around God. We must orient all our thoughts around God. Christianity isn't just one more thing to fit into your life. It is the North Star that rules everything it must. Paul breaks out into praise in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God is the source, the means, and the end of everything. And so everything in your life is designed to point you to the glory of God. And blessings and trials alike point us to the holiness of God. The patience, the mercy, the grace, the kindness, and the faithfulness of the Lord. And this universe is one giant theater that has as its chief and its only end the glory of God himself. The glory of the one who created it. And there is potential for us to miss something important here. If you've grown up in a Christian family, no doubt your parents taught you to put others ahead of yourself. And that is a biblical concept. So why would we say God puts himself above everything? And I have mixed feelings about popping balloons of pop sayings, but I'll go for one here. Some of you have maybe sang the song, God loves people more than everything. And you could fix that by saying God loves people more than any created thing. But friends, God loves himself more than anything. 
And if that seems backwards to you because you were taught to put others ahead of yourself, the reason it's wrong and disordered for us to put ourselves first is because we're sinful. Our passions would be disordered if we put ourselves first. But think, what if God could put anything other than himself first? What's more perfect than God? If God would love anything more than himself, his passions would be disordered. He's perfect. He must love himself more than anything. He's holy altogether. God loves himself more than anything. And that is what all the theater of creation is designed to point us to, to see God as he is. He cannot put anything above his zeal for his own glory. If he did, it would be a defect in his character and not a feature. And our job is to see that, to catch a vision of this and then to rejoice in it. And this can happen even in redundant things. We miss the glory of God in the monotony of everyday life. And sometimes we need the poets, the Christian poets, to help us see this better. One such man whom I love, who has a knack for seeing the divine in everyday, ordinary things, is the late English poet G.K. Chesterton. And he says this, and if you have a small child, you know how this works. The sun rises every morning. Now to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because it never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children when they find some game or joke that they especially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not through absence of life. Notice this argument. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It could be that God has never tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and it is our Father who is younger than we are. Can you see that? Can you see the delight of God in everyday, mundane, what seem like boring things? See it. The psalmist goes on in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They speak day and night of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abiding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And so here again, it is underscored the very purpose of creation 
is to display, to put on display the glory of God, which should properly lead to our praise of him. And this might be a good stopping point to consider what the word glory actually means. When we talk about the glory of God, is it like the word time, that everyone understands what it is until someone asks you to define it, and suddenly you're stumped? I wonder if it is like that. We all know what the glory of God is until you're forced to define it. Here's my best effort. The glory of God is God going public with his holy character. It's God showing off. God showing who he is in his creation. Why do I think that? I think that because of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 6. You can turn there if you want. This is after a long reigning monarch of Israel has died and all the stability and all the comfort and all the familiarity that God's people know in Israel is being upset. And Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the overflow of God's love for his holiness. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am undone. God, I can't look at you. I'm suffering a mental breakdown. Because I am gripped by your holiness. Stop. Make it stop. Please. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And notice the dazzling nature of God's display here. We know from Moses that no eyes can gaze upon God and live. And here we have unfallen angels who are given a set of wings for the sole purpose of covering their eyes to shield them from the blazing holiness of God. Even unfallen angels cannot look directly at God. With two, they cover their feet. Remember what God said at the burning bush to Moses. You're standing on holy ground. Even your feet can't touch here. God is too big. He is too holy. And the word holy is a superlative here that is used to the third degree. And this is the only characteristic of God which is ever emphasized three times. You will never, ever read in your Bible that God is love, love, love. You will never read in your Bible that God is wrath, wrath, wrath. There is one attribute and one attribute of God alone which is emphasized to the third degree and that is his holiness. And holiness isn't so much a single trait of God as the overarching attribute which unifies all of his other attributes. Holy is the description for a God who is entirely loving, entirely just, entirely wrathful, entirely patient, entirely long-suffering, and entirely jealous for his own glory. And even a glimpse into God's throne room is too much for the prophet to look at. And how different Isaiah's account or Ezekiel's account or any of the prophets, how different is their account in Scripture 
from our so-called modern-day prophets who casually talk with Jesus while they're shaving. Jesus tells a joke and then we laugh, haha. Friends, that is not the way God talks in Scripture. When God talks in Scripture, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's earthquakes, there's wind. It's terrible. It's terrible. You can't recover from this without the grace of God. Isaiah is in a state of emotional and mental breakdown. He says, I am undone. I'm lost. When he gets a glimpse of God as he really is. And notice closely what the angels are singing in verse 3. There's antiphonal singing is a majestic form of music where a choir is split in half and they sing back and forth to each other. And notice the move from holy, holy, holy to the earth being filled with God's glory in chapter th- in verse 3. And this is why I think it's God's glory is the public display of his holy character. The angels are singing this. The glory of God is clearly evident in things that we directly connect to God, such as when God shows mercy to a sinner and they repent. Or God showing kindness to his creation when he causes it to rain on the just, just and on the unjust. But once we start to see that God's claims of dominion and lordship and authority and power cover absolutely everything, we can also start to see displays of his glory in things that we don't naturally connect directly to him, such as a beautiful song or a medium rare steak or when the Olympics are on or some athletic accomplishment is made and you see glory in the way people have pushed and trained themselves through suffering to get to a certain point. That is the glory of God. And we're going to touch more on this as the series goes along. We also see glory in everyday little things. And I'm going to give a hint of two. One is a little girl practicing womanhood, practicing femininity by doing a fashion show for her daddy. That girl is designed for glory and she knows it. She might not be able to say it and her parents might not understand it. But when a little girl desires to be beautiful, she is showing that somehow in the image of God, she knows she is designed to symbolize Christ's bride, the church. The same is true of little boys practicing their masculinity, either when he protects his mom or perhaps when he gets up on a diving board and tells the whole world, look at me, before doing something risky. That boy is practicing obedience to his masculinity. He is training to lead a family or a church or start a business. He is training in masculinity and he is in the image of God. Everyday things that show we cannot escape God's design. It's in us. And it's okay to be wired for glory. That's what we are wired for. All of these things are a reflection of God's character in the created world. And they're all small tastes that cause us to long for a world which we have not yet seen. We get a taste for glory in all kinds of things because God's dominion is over all things and all times and all created order. Because God intends to redeem it all. I was asked recently, why, you know, why this emphasis that we've had in Sunday school on a physical resurrection and why is that so important? Friends, this is why it's so important. We're in Colossians. Jesus is not intent on throwing everything in the garbage and starting over. He's reconciling all things to himself. Creation is good. He is on a mission to restore it to what it was meant to be. This is why Christians are not Gnostics. We don't deny the physical world. We see a redeemed physical world. We're getting a foretaste of future glory. 
And once we have a handle on seeing and understanding, at least to some degree that our finite minds are able to, what God's glory is, we can see David's concern for the intergenerational transfer of a love for God and a delight in his glory, as you see in verse 4 and then 11 through 14 in the psalm. And it's difficult to teach things that we don't ourselves understand. And so this makes the task for Christian parents of understanding the word of God and understanding the world around you so much more important. This is why we have to be generalists as Christians. We have to understand the times that we live in. What are the ideas out there? And what kind of a picture does the biblical conception of reality paint? And if we are here, or I should say, since we are here to glorify God, now you start to see why this intergenerational transfer of faith is so pivotal. What else could we do? What lasting legacy could we leave other than believing great-grandchildren? And I'm going to ask you today, are you doing things in your life that you can say, I tried my best to make sure that my great-grandchildren will love Jesus? Are you doing that? We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't force this. But we can be obedient. We can anticipate future glory. We can anticipate. We want our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, who we have not yet met, to love the Lord Jesus. And we need to understand it ourselves if we're going to make it contagious to them. So for the intergenerational transfer of faith to work, all generations need to be present. And it's important for kids to hear their family stories in order to know who they are, where they come from. And stories from the past help us to know where we are, where we fit into the big story, how God has been faithful in the past. They help to paint a picture of our identity. And a sense of time and place help us to understand where we are, where we got into the story. We live in a mobile society that prizes above all else individualized self-expression, and that is not a healthy development in any way, shape, or form. An emphasis on self-expression has led not to greater depth of identity, but to a loss of identity, to confusion. Limitless choices of expression can actually harm us because they leave us paralyzed. We have no idea who we are. No one's explained to us what it means to be a little girl, what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a framer, what it means to be a lawyer. And so while we do want to leave room for the fact that God has made each of us unique in some ways, it's equally important that we have a sense of who we are that is fixed and solid in time, place, and fact. And in one scale, our family stories help us to do that. But in another place, this is the role of the church. The church is our spiritual family, our big family, so to speak. And so it's important to understand the history of the church, our own family stories. How has God worked in the church in the past? And in many settings, even the church ministry gets so fragmented that children don't have an opportunity to sit in grown-up church, let alone beside their parents or their grandparents. And when we move to specialized ministries for every age group that limits interaction between generations, the natural growth into the life of Christ's church gets severely stunted. If kids are always used to being surrounded by the wisdom of their peers until they're in their 20s, they're not used to sitting still. They're not used to the ordinary preaching of God's word. They've never learned the vocabulary. They've never learned the songs. They've never learned the rhythm of worship. And all of a sudden, they're 20 years old, and they don't know how to be in church. That's not healthy. How will they be able to feel connection to the saints from other times or to teach their own children if they haven't been taught it themselves? And so this is a tremendous blessing in young and old being together in Christ's family. And this is why we are intentional, a trinity, about doing intergenerational, family-integrated worship, whatever you want to call it. Everyone needs to be here, even little babies who are crying, who don't know what they're, don't know what they're hearing. But I'm going to ask you this. 
Do you remember every meal you've ever eaten? Was it important that you ate them? Yes, it was. <laughs> I don't remember everything I ate in 1986, but I'll tell you what, if I hadn't eaten it, I wouldn't be here. You don't remember every sermon you've heard. You don't remember every podcast you've listened to. You don't remember every song you've sung, but you know what? They were feeding you, so it was still important that you did it. Those little babies who we think aren't catching on, they're catching on to more than we think. They need to learn the vocabulary. They need to learn the rhythm. They're being fed. We need to be here to do this. So what stands in the way of us successfully handing off the faith to the next generation? Well, I want to first of all caution that this is not mechanical. We are not the Holy Spirit. We cannot guarantee results. We can be faithful to what God has told us to do, and then the results are ultimately out of our hands at that point. We need to do as we're instructed, and that includes training our children. And the forces around us are far too strong for us to be passive in this. I've talked lots about the lie of secularism, the myth of neutrality, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. Secularism is a religion. It's an enforced religion. There is no such thing as neutrality. Secularism starts by saying Jesus Christ is not Lord. If you want to fit him in some little compartment in your life, you can. But the ultimate claims to reality are without reference to Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a religion. It's an antichrist religion. It's a God-hating religion. There is no neutrality. There is no secularism. Every thought needs to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the psalmist is intent on making sure that his children and his grandchildren will see that. Christianity is not one more discipline that you slide in along the other disciplines of your life. It's at the top. It's at the top, making sense of math, of history, of philosophy. It's an overarching explanation of those things and how they got here. The Christianity of the Bible is an absolute, overarching worldview that encompasses every aspect of life, no exceptions whatsoever. All truth is God's truth, and we will not see unity in anything unless God is at the top of everything. God has dominion over everything. All truth meets at the top. All exists for God's glory. Yes, chemistry. Yes, governance. Yes, history. Yes, geology. It all meets at the top. And the psalmist goes on, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And so most of this last section here underscores what we've already looked at. But there is a question that persists as to the meaning of verse 16 and verse 19. Some take verses like this to mean that God will give us whatever we want. And so we should just name it and claim it. Or as I like to say, blab it and grab it. Right? We all have those prosperity preachers on TV telling you that if you think it, God will give it to you. And the question is further intensified by another psalm in Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So what does this mean? On the surface, it seems like it could mean that God will give you whatever you want. But the key to proper understanding is found in the context here as well. In, verse 30, in Psalm 37, 4, the basis of us getting our desires of our heart is to delight yourself in the Lord. 
And here in Psalm 145, the basis of us having our desires satisfied exists in verses 18 and 19. The desires are met for those who call upon him in truth and for those who fear him. So how do we solve this puzzle? On the one hand, we seem to have a view that says God is like a cosmic vending machine, giving us whatever we want, health, wealth, comfort, and anything else we may ask for. On the other hand, Christians may commit an equal but opposite error of responding to that view, and they give the impression that the Christian life should be as joyful as eating a mouthful of sand. Right? Well, just, you know, just me living my Christian life with my contagious joy of the Lord. I've actually heard a joy of the Lord sermon preached like this. Okay? That's not the way we handle this by committing an opposite extreme. We probably all know Christians who have fallen into one or the other of these traps. Either they think that God is a genie in a bottle for them, or they think that being dour and ascetic and doing everything with a sense of duty and obligation and never expressing any kind of joy or happiness or laughter is somehow bizarrely a sign of spiritual maturity. But there is a way to connect the dots here that results in maximum glory for God and maximum joy for you. We're going to get some help from people who have long died. Blaise Pascal, who's a 17th century mathematician, theologian, and apologist, tells us that seeking joy is inescapable. He says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire of both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. See what Pascal is saying? Suicide is not ultimately giving up on the quest for joy. It's one final step of despair in that quest. All men seek joy. This is inescapable. We cannot escape. Everyone here is always seeking their happiness. And either you'll find it somewhere that is a dead end, that overpromises and underdelivers, like stuff, or it will be fine in the triune God. Pascal goes on. There was a man in whom true happiness, of which now remains to him only in the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill with all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain things in the present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. In modern language, we'd say stuff won't make you happy. The next million will not make you any happier than the last million. Getting married, being single, it will not make you happy apart from the Lord himself. And this echoes almost to a word what the early church father Augustine wrote in the 4th century, that God has made us for himself and we will be restless. We will not be happy until we find our rest in him. The picture is given of a, like a river finally making it back to the ocean. And there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of this is where I belong. That is what it is to find God. C.S. Lewis, a more contemporary author, likewise a lay theologian, talks this way about joy. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God 
depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. What's Lewis saying here? He's saying overflowing with joy is part of the enjoyment. Okay? If you truly love something, part of your joy is to be contagious about it. Okay? This happens on a small scale. How did CCR write so many good songs in a five-year span? Okay? I like CCR, so I'm, I fill over and I need to tell everyone about it. Okay? You've got Dallas Cowboys fans. You've got Kansas City Chiefs fans. And part of the joy is to express that joy to other people. That's part of what it is. Okay? This works the same way with God. Enjoyment isn't, yeah, I, I, I love God. And some kind of socialist conception of joy as though there's this fixed amount of joy in the universe and so the more God gets, the less is left over for me. So my job is to be the most joyless person you know. Not at all. As we delight in God, God gets more glory. The more glory we see God getting in our life, the more contagious and joy-filled we become. This is a feedback loop that keeps firing bigger and bigger on both sides. And lastly, this is what Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan pastor, tells us. God glorifies himself toward the creature in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the gifts that he has made of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. Part of what God gets glory in is you enjoying it. Okay? Joy is mandatory. Joy is commanded. Okay? One, one small picture that I get of how this works is we used to pasture our cows across the gravel pits. And there's a bunch of wildflowers there. And, and I've found beauty in wildflowers. Tanya likes having flowers in our house, so I picked a bunch for her to show her I love her and to help her create beauty in our home, which she enjoys to do. There's this mutual feedback loop of joy that happens. Now imagine if I had given her those flowers and she says, oh, thank you, that's wonderful. And I would have said, yeah, that's my job. I'm your husband. I love you. Okay? No one wants to be around Eeyore. Part of my joy in giving her those flowers is that she also enjoys it. That's how satisfaction in Christ works. It's not more joy for God, less for me. It's the more I see God's purposes in something, the happier I am, the happier I am in Christ, the more joy, the more glory God gets. And this is all summarized in, Pipe, in John Piper's tagline, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll say that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If we start running on the fuel that we were designed to run on, which is giving God glory, which is rejoicing in God's glory, then we will always receive our strongest desire, which is that God would be glorified. Once the gospel reorders our desires, we will indeed always receive what we desire because our desire is the glory of God. We will always get what we want because we want God to be glorified above all else. This is different than asking for a Corvette. This is different than asking for a million dollars. You'll always get what you want if God's glory is top. And so in the same way, we find joy because we are doing what we are designed to do and God is glorified in his creation because his creation is doing what it was designed to do, which is to praise him. And this gives us a framework to remain anchored in joy even when life is genuinely difficult. Joy is deeper than happiness. Joy is deeper than a plastic smile. 
Joy can cry deep tears of sadness when someone dies. Joy can do that. Joy can face bankruptcy head on and realize how tough this is. Joy remains. It certainly can. So we've worked through this. God's desire, in summary, is to glorify himself and his holy character. And this is the whole point of creation. It's the whole point of you and of me. And if you think you can be somebody that you're not, you are in for trouble. Frank Sinatra famously sang, I did it my way. Friends, there is nobody, if Frank Sinatra did not repent, who is more unhappy with doing things his way than Frank Sinatra is right now, if he did not repent. You do not want to do things your way. You want to do things God's way. We need new, born-again eyes and ears to see and hear the glory of God all through creation so that we can teach it and proclaim it to our children and our grandchildren so that they can see a world in which Christ reigns supreme from top to bottom, from the church to the math class to framing a house. And then we need to see that if we are ever to find real and lasting joy, we need to find it in rejoicing in this glory that he has stamped all over his creation. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your kindness. I want to thank you that you are so delighted in being yourself. You are so full of zeal for your holy name that you erupted into a creation to create a theater and an audience to observe you and to love you and to make you known. And Lord, I pray that you would catch a vision of that in each of our hearts and minds this morning, that we would be gripped by who you are and then who we are, and we would see our place in history accordingly. Lord, I pray that we would be contagious to pursue joy that comes only in you, that we would be satisfied in you, and that you would get glory in seeing how we are being conformed to your image. Lord, I pray that for each one here this morning, I pray that your spirit would minister to each one where they're at, whether high or low, that we would be gripped by a vision for your glory. And Lord, as we move to communion, I pray that you would feed us now. Give us reminders of your grace, of your kindness, and your mercy to us. Lord, we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus.